know, uh, years ago, I decided that I'd read Pilgrim's Progress to my boys, you know. So we would do that at night. We would, as I'm tucking them in bed, read our way through the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, truth is, we never quite finished it. I, I pulled out my copy that I was reading to them this week to see where I left off. And I'm like, oh yeah, we never quite, quite finished it. Have you read it? How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? It's a, it's a Christian classic, right? It comes from the 1600s. Yeah, you've tried. You've got to get a modern version, that's for sure, because uh, it's 350 years old. John Bunyan wrote it while he was in prison. It's like his story is kind of a crazy story, but he was arrested in England because, you know, the monarchy was like asserting its control over the church, and he was an unlicensed Baptist pastor preaching the Bible, so he went to jail for 12 years. How about that? But anyways, I mean, John wrote amazing stuff from prison, and Pilgrim's Progress is just a great classic Christian read. It's one of the most read Christian classics of all time. And uh, it's an allegory about the Christian life, right? The main character is this story by the name of Christian, and um, John tells what happens to him as he is making his way uh, down the path of faith to the celestial city. He meets all these different characters, and it's, a, it's just a great story, and he faces danger as he makes his way to the celestial city. And the story is all about this path that he takes, because the Bible compares the Christian life as to traveling down a road. In fact, the earliest Christians were called followers of the way, right? Like, even before they were called Christian in the, Christians in the book of Acts, they were called followers of the way after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the birth of the church. They were called followers of the way, meaning that there was a specific pattern, a specific direction that their life was headed in, a specific way that they were seeking to live as followers of Jesus because Jesus himself called himself the way, the truth, and the life. So they were called followers of the way. And on the path of following Christ, there's lots of dangers, right? Like if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you know this. There are a lot of things that can sidetrack you. There are a lot of things can, that can get you off course if you're not careful. Jesus said that the path that leads to destruction is wide and the gate that leads to eternal life is narrow. That road, that path is narrow and few find it. Which means this, that when we're following Jesus, as we seek to live for Jesus, there's a certain level of like circumspect that needs to happen. Internal watching, being alert to the pattern of your life to say, am I on the path? Am I continuing on this narrow path in following Christ? Now we've been going through Luke's gospel verse by verse Chapter by chapter, we've seen this. Jesus has set his sights on Jerusalem. And amongst the Jewish people, expectation of what the future held for him in the minds of the people was just exploding. We're about to, we're about to read this. I mean, the crowds were continuing to grow. They had become something incredible. And the disciples actually weren't ready for it. So as the crowds grew and as the chaos around Jesus grew, as people laid all this expectation on him, it was pretty awesome. But the disciples weren't ready for it. 
And so Jesus turns to his disciples in the face of the crowd to communicate some things to them on the road that they're about to travel and following him. And so I was thinking about the allegory of Pilgrim's Progress. You know, along, along the path to the celestial city, there were dangers that Christian faced that he encountered and he needed to be aware of them and continually avoid them. And so this morning, from the word of God, Jesus gives us, in Luke's gospel, four dangers. Four dangers for his disciples. They're gonna come up on the screen. They're this in the text this morning. Hypocrisy, fear, greed, and worry. The first that he warned them of was hypocrisy. We know, we know what hypocrisy is, right? Like it's claiming with your mouth to live a certain way, to have certain moral standards or practices that your life doesn't actually conform to. That's actually a modern definition of what hypocrisy is. The idea of a hypocrite in ancient times was originally a word that was to describe what happened in ancient theaters, in acting. An actor was called a hypocrite when he would put on a mask and he would take on the portrayal of another character. So you put on the mask to represent another character and that was called a hypocrite. And Jesus takes that picture. So let's check this out here. In verse one, it says this. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. Wow, that is quite the scene, isn't it? Like the crowds are actually crushing one another with regards to seeing Jesus. He began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing, covered, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So, so Jesus is warning. He turns from the crowds and he warns his disciples on this path, on this road that you take as my follower, you need to be aware of something that your life is not reduced to just being an actor, just playing. Nothing but a man with a mask on. In the Christian life, hypocrisy is pretending to be more spiritual than you actually are. And Jesus compared the working of hypocrisy in someone's life to the working of leaven, like yeast, when you're making bread. I mean, every person among the Jewish people knew what that meant. Leaven is used a lot in Scripture. And in Scripture, the picture of leaven is always used as a picture of sin. That's Passover, you know, they baked bread without leaven, right? You know, at certain times of the year and feasts and different worship times in the religious calendar and preparation for their worship, the Jews would take time and they would go through their house and they would make sure the leaven was removed from their homes because leaven in scripture is always a picture of sin. And there are characteristics of leaven and how it works, how yeast works. And it's a great picture of how hypocrisy can work in the life of a, a Christian. It, they kind of mirror one another in the actions of what they do. That's what Jesus said. I mean, think about yeast, you know. I haven't baked much bread, <laughs> hardly ever. My wife, that's usually her department, and I wish she would do it more often. I'm just going to publicly say that. No, I'd probably be 100 pounds heavier if we were to, 
doing that all the time. But you know, I've seen in the baking cupboard in our house those little packages of yeast, and they're so small, and it's amazing. Like in terms of volume, when you're mixing together all the ingredients of bread, like you're filling some big bowl, and then you just mix in this little package, and it only takes a tiny little bit, and, and it will move through the whole batch of dough. Like a little bit of yeast goes a long way. And comparatively, you know, when you think about the ingredients of bread, it's, it's crazy how small of a amount it takes. And when the atmosphere is right, you know, I, I know that sometimes we've left bread on the counter to proof or put it in the oven to proof. I mean, I don't, what do I know about the science of making bread? But I know this, that, that bread is proofed. And one of the things that happens with the yeast is that it just begins to spread all the way through the bread and bring its effect to the whole batch. The, the work of leaven, it's weird because you can't see it. It's not like it's like dyed some color or something. You don't even see how it works. You just begin to see the effects of it on the dough. It's like it doesn't make any noise, you know. It's silent. It's invisible. You can't see it make its way through the dough. There's not really any way to identify its work except that it just begins to puff up once it's mixed in. And secretly, this yeast works right through the whole batch. And so Jesus said this, beware the yeast of hypocrisy. In the life of a disciple, hypocrisy, the dangerous form that it takes, Jesus says, happens to do with our speech, with our mouths, when our words and our life don't align. Jesus warned his disciples, don't be deceived to think you can say things behind closed doors, behind people's backs, and it will be hidden. All will come into the light. That's what Jesus said. You know, God never compares his work to leaven. It's kind of interesting. Leaven's a picture of sin. He compares himself and his work in the scripture to light. And he says this, Jesus says this, all will come into the light. All things behind closed doors, all things will be brought out into the open for all to see. It's a scary thought, isn't it? And so the question is, does our speech align with our lives? Does our speech at church or with someone align to how we act and how we live and what we say when others aren't around? We have to be cautious and aware of the danger of hypocrisy because hypocrisy can spread like leaven. A little bit will work its way through your whole life. And so we have to be aware of our speech. We have to be aware of the way our lives are lived and, and deed and spoken word need to align with one, or, one another and the follower of Jesus's, the follower of Jesus' life. And so this is the first warning. Beware the leaven of the Pharisee, which is hypocrisy. The second warning that Jesus gives his disciples has to do with fear. Look at verse four. I tell you, my friends do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom, you to, whom to fear. Fear him after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. 
So the second danger along uh, the Christian path is this danger of fear. And fear can cripple. Fear can paralyze your faith. Fear can cause you to shirk back from speaking up about Jesus. Fear can cause you to shirk back from sharing Jesus. Fear is, is caused by worry about what people think. And fear sometimes leads us to miss opportunities in faith, you know, sharing our faith. Has that happened to you where you've been afraid? You've been afraid to speak up for Christ, afraid to say something for Jesus, and we shrink back. Sometimes we're afraid, well, maybe I'll say the wrong thing. We're afraid because maybe I don't know enough. I'm going to look silly. And fear causes us to give over consideration to what men think. Fear causes us to give over consideration to the reactions and the reprisals of men. And the cure to fear is to fear something greater, actually, Jesus said. I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, when summertime would come and we would do road trips and sometimes go camping somewhere or this or that. I always remember at different times driving through the Fraser, Fraser Canyon and seeing that mighty Fraser River. It's like awesome. And my mom, when we were on these road trips, she would always tell me the same thing. She would say, don't ever swim in a river because there's currents and there's undertoes and you never know what will happen if you swim in a river. You, you might drown. And so, you know, I was always like, I've always been afraid of swimming in any river. I'm like, okay, ocean, I'll go anywhere, lake, but a river, I don't know what's going to happen if I go in a river. And so I remember when I was just out of high school, I moved to Prince George. I lived up in the heart. Every day I'd have to drive over the Nechaco River. And that river, I mean, if you know Hard Highway, it just that river just boils. You could just see the currents and the swirling. And I think, man, I don't want to swim in that river. And I was thinking about that. You know, if I was standing on the banks of the Nechaco River and someone said, you have to swim across, I'd be terrified. There's no way I would want to swim across that river. Unless, like a grizzly bear or something, came out of the forest, right? Then if there was a grizzly bear, my fear would change. And I wouldn't fear the river. I would fear the grizzly bear, and I'd get in the water, and I'd make my attempt to get across. I'd be overcome by a greater fear, the fear of the bear eating me. And that's kind of a stupid illustration, but you get the point. The key to the fear of man is to fear God. Fear something greater than you fear man. If you're more afraid of what God will say to you, if you're more afraid of what God will think of you, your fear of man will disappear. Scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like when you just fear man, wisdom in your life begins to disappear. In your situation, wherever, where maybe you're sharing your faith, it's like you're afraid, you just fear the Lord more and he'll give you wisdom and his spirit will lead you. We should realize this, Jesus says, that what God can do to you is far worse than what any man could ever do to you. The worst a man could do to you is this. He could take your life. And that wouldn't be good. I mean, you don't want that to happen. But then, I mean, if you follow Jesus, you know this. You go into the presence of the Lord. I mean, it's like, take my life, yes, but I've gained something greater. But the Lord, on the other hand, he can do this. He can take a person's life and he can send them to hell for eternity. Eternally separated from him. And so fear of the Lord has a healthy 
place in the life of the believer, Jesus said. We talked about this last week, about how we can have this false view of Jesus. I called him a sentimental Jesus that presents everything with regards to love and niceness and this and that. And Jesus, I would say here, says, no, there is a proper place for fearing the Lord in your life. That is the proper attitude before men in the life of a disciple. Fear God, because God is holy. God can send you to hell. God disciplines his children, and we should have a fear of him that is healthy and is greater than our fear of man. And it's amazing that, that the Lord can do this, and so it's like we need to adjust our lives and say, fear God more than we fear man, because God can cast someone into hell. But Jesus also tells us this, that God has care for each one of us. He knows the number of hairs on our head, which is the appropriate place for a bald guy joke, right? He knows the number of hairs on our head. He, he says he knows about each sparrow. Not one is forgotten. A sparrow doesn't have much worth, Jesus says, but your life, man, God cares for you and it is worth much to him. Don't fear. Don't fear. And Jesus makes this very practical with what he says next. Look at verse 8. He says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. See, the correct viewpoint of life, the correct viewpoint for the life of a disciple is not what men will say of you or I. The correct viewpoint in life is to think about what God will say of you. Listen, when you're in that spot and someone says, you go to church? Do you, follow, do you read the Bible? Do you follow Jesus? Are you a Christian? This is practical for us. And the fear of man just begins to rise in our hearts. And it can rise. Because you can think to yourself, I mean, this person knows me. They know sometimes my words and my deeds don't align. Like they can point out the hypocrisy in my life because they've worked with me for years. Or they're a family member. Or this or that. Or I think, well, the fear begins to rise because they're going to associate me with this view of the church. They're going to associate me with this perspective that some people have or whatever it is they're going to associate with me. And, and, and you think, what am, I, what am I going to say? I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I follow Christ. We've all been in that spot because we don't want to be associated with other Christians or we don't want to misrepresent Jesus or whatever it is. In that moment, listen, don't think about what that person thinks. Think about what God thinks. Think about what Jesus thinks. Jesus said, if you can't confess that you belong to me, I can't admit before the angels that you belong to me. That's sobering, isn't it? I am glad that it doesn't say before the Father. It says before the angels. Jesus said, if you can't confess that you belong to me, I can't admit that you belong to me. When the opportunity comes and we begin to balk at the fear of man, and we don't confess Jesus, Jesus says in heaven, right now, 
I can't acknowledge that that person belongs to me. But when we do confess Christ before men, Jesus says, I know that man. I know that woman. They belong to me. Look what he says next, verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is, this is hopeful right here. Because Jesus says, yes, there are times you're going to say something wrong. You may speak against the Son of Man. There is forgiveness in that. But he says this, and this verse builds up a lot of questions for people. He says there's a sin that can't be forgiven. To blaspheme against the Spirit of God. And so it's like, well, I mean, you've probably asked this question. What is the sin that can't be forgiven? We're, we all wonder that because it's like, well, did I participate in that? I mean, have I committed the unforgivable sin? So what is the sin of blasphemy of the Spirit? Well, think about this. God wants himself to be known. God wanted to bring men and women into right relationship with himself. So in his salvation story, he chose a man, Abraham, who would become a nation. And he gave to that nation his law. And he commanded them to be a light to all nations, but they couldn't keep his law. No matter what they tried, they couldn't keep his law. So he sent word through his prophets. And they would kill his prophets. We talked about this last week, from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah. They even killed the prophet who would announce the coming of his son. So he sent his son. And when his son came, they killed him. They rejected the Father. The world does this. Those outside of the kingdom of God. Natural revelation tells us that God exists. The existence of the Father is obvious. The Father gave the law and the prophets, but they rejected God. And, and they rejected the Son who sought to reconcile them to the Father, they killed Jesus. And finally, the Father sent the Holy Spirit who pointed them to the Son who had reconciled them to the Father. But if a person rejects the ministry of the Holy Spirit, listen, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's nothing left. That's it. What more do you want? There's no other option. The Spirit is convicting and convincing the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come by pointing the world to Jesus. And if He is rejected, there is nothing else. To reject the work and the witness of the Spirit is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And for that, there is no forgiveness of sin. The Father has spoken, and He's been rejected. The Son spoke to them, and He was rejected. And if the Spirit of God is rejected, there is nothing else, man. It's the end of the line. The Holy Spirit is always pointing people to Jesus. And if we don't receive Jesus, if we credit the work of Jesus as being as if it's from the devil, well... There is no forgiveness. That's unforgivable. But on the other hand, if you'll confess Jesus before men, you can always count on this. Oh, I love this. If you will confess Jesus before men, 
you can always count on the work and the help of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Jesus said. Verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I love this. I mean, remember in the book of Acts, Peter and John, when they stood before the council, they feared what God thought about them. They didn't care what those men thought about them. They feared what God had to say about them. They didn't care what man could do to them. And the council, when they spoke to Peter and John, they took note, these men had been with Jesus. These ordinary, unschooled men have been with Jesus. The Spirit of God helped them in answering that counsel. When Stephen, in the book of Acts, preached Christ to his accusers, no one, the Scripture says, could argue with what he said because his words were convincing and they were empowered by the Spirit of God. The worst they could do to him, they did. They killed him. But he confessed Christ and the Lord welcomed him into his presence. The scripture tells us, even as he was dying, the heavens opened. And Jesus said, Father, Stephen confessed me before men. He belongs to us. And the Holy Spirit gave him words to say. Look at Jesus said this. Don't fear when men put you on the spot. Just confess me and the Holy Spirit will empower you. Isn't that encouraging? I find that so encouraging. So Jesus warned his disciples about the dangers of hypocrisy and the dangers of fear. And both of them are interesting because they have to do with us giving too high of esteem or too high of consideration for people's opinions of us, fearing men. The reason a person will be a hypocrite is because they give too much weight and too much consideration to what others think about them. They want to look good in the eyes of people. So they will misalign their deeds and their words. The flip side of that is you give too much opinion to what men say of you and you just fear and you're silenced, right? The hypocrite speaks and he misrepresents himself. And the one who's afraid is silenced and says nothing, right? It's like, it's like opposite sides of the same coin. Hypocrite or fear. Say something or say nothing. Both are motivated by the same thing. The fear of man. We're to fear God, church. We're to fear God, church. And so Jesus is giving this lesson to his disciples. And right then, someone interrupts him. And so he kind of turns the conversation and he talks about two more dangers. They're this, greed and worry. These two dangers along the path, I guess, to the celestial city, they don't actually have anything to do with fearing man. It's interesting. Hypocrisy and fear, those have to do with the fear of man. Speaking and misrepresenting yourself or not speaking, that has to do with the fear of man. But greed and worry are also flip sides of the same coin, but they have to do with loving this world. Let's check this out. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, 
Who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? Verse 15. And he said to them, his disciples, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And it's like crazy. Here's two bros. They're fighting over an inheritance. You ever seen that happen? Hope it hasn't happened in your family. Man, when someone dies and there is an inheritance, families go crazy sometimes, don't they? Don't they? It can get, relationships can get messy. People that, people that have got along like their whole lives, they could just turn on one another over an inheritance. People will do crazy things when it comes to money. And I imagine we've all seen that happen. Well, it happened to this man. He approached Jesus. And, and his brother, you know, him and his bro were at odds over the family inheritance. And he wanted Jesus to sort it all. Jesus, sort it all out. Jesus, bring me justice. Bring me justice, Jesus. Make my brother fairly divide the inheritance because he's the executor of the will. But Jesus knew his heart. And he knew that there was an underlying issue of the heart in this man. And, and this heart problem that this man had can be a danger for any disciple of Jesus. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to warn his followers. So verse 15 again, he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all sorts of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I mean, we know this. It's like the minute you die, everything you have is worthless anyways, right? It doesn't mean anything to you. It's left for others to fight over. And so Jesus says this, you, you need to guard your heart against covetousness, which is greed. Covetousness is like an interesting sin in Scripture. It's very unique because, you know, it can't necessarily be seen. It can be hidden in the heart. It like can exist. My heart can be boiling over with covetousness and, and you can't see it. And this man, he appeared to want justice, but hidden underneath the request was actually greed. And so Jesus told a parable about a rich man whose greed had sidetracked him. Verse 16, let's look at this. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Boy, you know, let's be honest, wouldn't you love to have this problem right here? <laughs> I don't know what to do with everything that I have. So much wealth that I can't even store it. I gotta look for new ways to hold and protect my investments. I, I happen to personally really like this idea. Uh, but Jesus said this, there's a great danger here for a disciple of Jesus. See, this man didn't acknowledge the Lord whatsoever in his plans. Greed had entirely bound this man to the world. The kingdom of God was far removed from his thoughts, far removed from his heart. He didn't acknowledge that this life is not all there is. 
He failed to take eternity into consideration. He concerned himself with protecting what was his and making sure he had the ability to do what he wanted and everything was secure. And he made the mistake, I would say, of thinking he was going to live forever. He forgot the bell tolls for everyone. He forgot that he would die and it would all be worthless. It didn't matter. I mean, we know this. It's good to plan for the future. But don't plan like you're going to be here forever because you won't. We're all going to stand before the Lord. And this man was securing his investments and Jesus said he was a fool. Not a fool in the sense that he's ignorant. The language is actually clear. It's not because he's ignorant and he didn't know better. He was a fool in the sense that he did know better and he didn't do what was right. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Then what will happen with all the things you've laid up for yourself? Whose will they be? See, greed is a great danger for the disciple of Jesus. Greed is a danger for those who are rich. And in comparison to the rest of the world, that is every person in this room. That's us. Greed's danger for us in our culture. So we have to guard our hearts. It's interesting, the flip side of wealth, of course, is poverty. The flip side of being over-concerned with what you have and over-concerned with this world and being greedy is to be worried about poverty. Worry is sin. And worry can be a danger to the disciple. Let's read on. This is the fourth Warning that he gives his disciples, the fourth thing that they should, the danger they should be watching out for, and it's worry. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O little of faith, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So this is a great passage of scripture. I love it. So good. Worry is sin. <laughs> Worry is like, Jesus, you could be anxious about everything. You're not going to add an hour to your life. Worry is not good for your physical health. I mean, we actually know that. Scripture says be anxious for nothing. God knows your basic needs. He knows your needs for food and clothing. You know, think about your own kids if you're a parent. My kids never needed to worry about food and clothing, you know. 
I, I know some parents that at times have gone through times of poverty, but they made sure the kids had no idea. They didn't want the kids to ever worry about food or clothing. Lisa and I made sure those things were taken care of. And our Father in heaven, he's no different, church. If you're worried about food or clothing, you're actually the defaming the character of your God. What does that do for you? Does it add to your life? Does that add a single hour to your life? No, worry will actually shorten your life. You, like your arteries will harden up and all that terrible stuff. Your Father is in heaven. You don't have to worry. You know who has to worry? You know who has to worry? The person who doesn't know Jesus. The unbeliever should worry. The unbeliever should worry because the unbeliever doesn't have a father. They're an orphan. They're abandoned and alone. They should worry about finances and they should worry about the future. But you, you child of God, your heavenly father knows what you need. Jesus said, look at the birds. Consider the flowers. He is good even to the unrighteous. What do you have to worry about? Trust him. Go about your work, I would say, and trust the Lord because worry is sin. There's no excuse to be lazy. No excuse not to work. No excuse not to plan. No excuse not to budget. But worry, it won't add anything and it's defamation against the Lord. And so these two warnings, greed and worry, they're opposite sides of the same coin, and they, they have to do with being over-concerned about the things of this world. But there's a cure to the disease. There's a cure to the disease of loving this world, and Jesus said the cure is this, get concerned about the right thing. And the right thing that should have your concerns is the kingdom of God. Look at verse 32 again. I'm sorry, we didn't quite read this one yet. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The cure to greed and the cure to worry is to get your focus on the kingdom of God. Remember the river and the grizzly? I mean, the cure to one fear is to have a greater fear. My fear of God has to be greater than my fear of man. And the cure to our concerns about this world, our greed and our worry, the cure is to have greater concern about the kingdom of our Lord and of his Lord. If my concern is the kingdom of God, then I will come to the conclusion that I don't need to fear. And in fact, I will be freed. I won't need to worry. I won't need to be greedy. And in fact, I'll be freed to be very generous. That's what Jesus actually says here. You'll be freed to be generous because you'll recognize the kingdom and all that is in it belongs to the Father. You're his kid. In fact, Jesus said this, you can actually lay up treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven. And laying up treasure in ha heaven happens the exact opposite way as laying up treasure on earth. Like to lay up treasure on earth, you scrimp 
and you save and you keep tight and you, you build your nest egg and you build bigger barns and you build bigger bank accounts, accounts. That's how you lay up treasure on earth. But to lay up treasure in heaven, you give. You be of generous heart. It's the exact opposite. You give and you have more treasure. You will be richer. So man, let me encourage you this morning. Find good things that are kingdom-minded and give. Find good things that are generous and give to the kingdom of God for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so for disciples, there are four dangers on the path of discipleship. Two of them have to do with the fear of man, hypocrisy and fear. And the solution is this, fear God more. Two, greed and worry are related to having a love of this world and the solution is be more concerned about the kingdom of God. See, the fear of man needs to be confronted with a greater fear, fear the Lord. And concern for this world has to be confronted with a greater concern and that concern should be the kingdom of God. Let's pray this morning.